Hello and welcome back to Breaking Ground on iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. This week, I'm chatting to Tony Reddy, uh, Chairman of Reddy Architecture and Urbanism. Tony, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Carol. Tony, uh, thank you. Well, Tony, uh, really, one of the things I want to talk to you about today, um, your name is synonymous with the delivery of some really great projects um, in Ireland and beyond. But today I wanted to talk to you about our planning system, because I have been criticised in the past on air for saying that our planning system is dysfunctional or no longer fit for purpose. And surprise, surprise, I read, uh, a, well, a couple of editorials that you wrote in recent months, but one particularly where you actually use the phrase the Irish planning system is no longer functioning effectively to meet the needs of our society. And quite frankly, it's only slowed down since then. So you might just give our audience an overview as to planning in Ireland and where we find ourselves now in 2023. OK, well, uh, as I said in my article, I think there are serious problems with both the Irish and British planning systems. They're both out of the same stable, the 1947 British Planning Act and the 1963 Irish Planning Act are very similar in structure. And um, the added problem with the Irish system is that we also have a right of third party appeal. Uh, what we, what, what, while that may have functioned to a degree when Ireland was uh, relatively uh, a, a rural society with not a significant amount of development, uh, the situation has really changed in the last 10, 15 years, where we've become an urban society. Development is significant and complex. And the challenges our society faces with uh, significant growth in population, uh, um, one of the youngest populations in Europe, by the way, uh, with an, a huge emerging need for new housing. Uh, to provide for that, uh, um, uh, and indeed with the, all the related services, uh, schools, uh, um, third level institutions, uh, workplace, all of those things uh, put a huge demand in our society, and our planning system is frankly creaking. Uh, I, I was putting the proposition that um, when we look at uh, our European colleagues, they, unlike um, Britain and Ireland, they have a quite different planning system. And another role that I, I, I um, uh, fulfill is I'm a director, former chair of the Academy of Urbanism. That's a London-based uh, um, uh, knowledge uh, 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 organization. And we look all over the world at great places uh, and what makes them tick. Uh, and we try to gather that information to teach people who are involved in making of cities, making of places, uh, uh, that they can learn from that. Um, Tony, just in terms of the urbanism and around placemaking, in your experience, how much changes? Because we talk a lot about, um, I, I suppose, the psychology, the, the reality is planning is a public function. And previously, maybe the public wasn't as engaged in our planning process. And there's a lot to argue there that uh, it's not designed to be inviting for the public. Um, 
and actually what's happened now is that all engagement or, or sorry the majority of engagement appears to be negative so we don't we don't get much positive engagement so will you maybe take us to some of the fundamentals of plus uh, placemaking because you know you you have some international exposure there so you talk about what makes a, a place great what does make a place great well, well I, I i think what makes a place great is that the vision of the particular city or society uh, is a unified vision uh, and there are good methods, uh, effective methods of governance that ensure it's delivered. We see that a lot more in continental Europe. And I, coming back to the specific point you made about engagement, I personally, in the articles I wrote for the Business Post, I, I believe we should embrace uh, communication. I think what's different with British and Irish society is that our Planning Act, firstly, it's non-specific. It, it, the, the words used in both acts are that a, a planning a development plan it consists of words and maps. Quite frankly, that's the that, that's the sort of language of another era. If you look at the development plan of Copenhagen or Stockholm or Amsterdam or Berlin or Hamburg, these development plans are visionary. Firstly, they're in three dimensions, both in model form and in CGIs, and there's huge communication. Our problem is that because we have a vague written plan uh, with colored maps, it's left to the third party to decide on the form. Our planning system, our, our planners don't plan. Very few of them plan. Most of them process planning applications. When I go to the planning department in Copenhagen or in Stockholm or Helsinki or Berlin, I go to, or, or recently I was in Freiburg. In Freiburg, and it just happens I remember the figures, they had 35 planners planning a relatively small city about the size of Cork. They had three people processing planning applications because the vision was an agreed vision. It's the models, the three-dimensional studies, so the height, the mass, in some cities, even the materials are specified, but, but there's a clear vision of what the society wants. That's been debated. In a recent uh, visit last year, I was in Aarhus, in, in the second city uh, of uh, Denmark. And what the, what the local authority there explained to us was they have 13 political parties from the extreme left, the revolutionary Mar Marxist uh, party, to the extreme right, a real fascist party. But what was amazing was, and then in many centrist parties, the amazing thing was for those 13 parties, the vision of their city was the same physical vision. While they might disagree about the, the content, the revolutionary Marcus wanted all to be built by the state, controlled by the state. And in a very odd way, the right-wingers had a similar vision but a different control and in the middle you had the varying uh, forms of governance that you find in others but the physical vision of the city was a unified one and that's what i was arguing in the business post that our system should embrace communication it's too late when a complex planning application and planning applications when i was a young man were are quite different to today it's almost like a Cecil B. DeMille film. There's a cast of thousands, bat, bat experts, 
um, lighting experts, uh, um, water course experts, archaeologists. The list becomes more and more wind experts. It gets very complex. So a planning application, uh, formal planning application, documentation is is huge. I took a photograph recently of our staff bringing planning applications. They were bringing box loads of material, which is never looked at, to out to a truck to be carried to the planning department. What I'm arguing for is that we bring it all back. It's 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 sorry. The other side of the, our system is because there's an appeal late in the day. People are frustrated, rightly, but but it's like shooting fish in a barrel. You set someone, uh, you set a lawyer go, to find a fault. You're going to find a fault. That's their job, and that's what's been happening. So the system is broken, but we're not really solving any problem. We have a huge housing crisis, uh, and people are generally unhappy. What I'm arguing for is that. Our city development plan should be visionary like uh, continental Europe. We should have a debate am among everybody with the NIMBYs or the bananas, build anything, build absolutely nothing anywhere, da, 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 et cetera. Um, we need to have a debate with these people. The people who don't believe in, in public transport and are arguing for a city that's car-based, we need to show them in debate what that means, that we have a, a city of Dublin of a hundred kilometer radius or Cork at 50 kilometer radius. Do people understand what that physically means? And I believe- and, and, But Tony, sorry to interrupt you there, but Tony, is debate the right word here? Because you've said it yourself, do, you know, you questioned it there. Do people understand? I would argue that they don't. And the reason for that is that we're not, you know, you, you've said there on a number of times there that, communication the importance of communication and i i think that we do communications from a from developer from projects whether it's private developers or state developers to the community i think we do that exceptionally badly and i think both the public and private sector do that exceptionally badly and on both sides there's mm -hmm. a mistrust uh we know that that um, the either the private sector delivery uh, project owners or the public sector they don't trust the community to open to open real communication. So there's quite tokenistic tick, tick the box compliance led consultation, but it's not true participation. And you know I, I I'm not sure if, if I agree with you that a conversation needs to happen at an earlier stage, but I don't think it would even be a debate. I think it's an informing, it's an education piece that needs to happen, but we need to communicate with people in a way they understand. And most people don't understand plans and maps. But but I, I suppose what I'm that's precisely what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they should see models, they yeah. should see GIs, they, they, the communication in most of our European uh, fellow EU countries uh, is far better than ours. In fact, the image behind you of the uh, Docklands, ironically, that is the result of the sort of system I'm talking about. Now, I don't think there was enough communication with it, but that was based on a vision. There were lots of debates. I debated about certain heights and things at the time, but I did. I do accept the vision. And that vision has delivered a significant piece of city for us that has exemplary public spaces, has opened up a huge part of the city that didn't exist in my childhood. Um, uh, 
it has improved the attractiveness of our city through inward investment. Had Dublin City Council, using its traditional planning mechanisms, been in charge of this area, we'd be probably still dealing with the early uh, uh, additional information requests on the first planning applications. I suppose what I'm arguing for is that I'd also like to, 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 to say that we in Ireland have a history of planning like this. Uh, Dublin itself uh, first began to significantly change when the Duke of Ormond came back from a 10-year period of exile with uh, King Charles in France and the other courts of Europe. And he came back no longer a kind of your typical um, Anglo-Irish aristocrat who, who was not really interested in cities or city planning. He came back with a vision for a city. And unlike King Charles, who had to deal with the prospect that he didn't want to be beheaded, he had to move very carefully. Sir Christopher Wren and others did great plans for London after the Great Fire um, and after the plague. But ultimately, he went for a rebuilding of the original city because he was afraid to move. There was no such restriction on the Duke of Ormond. He came back to Dublin. The first thing he did was he determined that, and it's the first city in these islands that has a, a roadway onto the river. He told Sir Humphrey Jervis, one of the burghers of the city, that he wasn't going to build his house backing onto the river like others, that he wanted them to turn it around and face the river. So that was the that's now on Ormond Quay. He went on to plan the Phoenix Park the Royal Hospital, St. Stephen's Green, Smithfield. In a relatively short lifetime, he did all that, even in his native Kilkenny, or it's not his native, but the home of his family seat in Kilkenny. He laid out the uh, parade. Um, I, I, but I would imagine that uh, today's planners would say that they're dealing with a very different environment. They're dealing with a highly critical public. They're no. dealing with a, a hugely uh, political um, well, planning I, I the reason they're dealing with that is in the absence of a vision. I wanted to go on and say, we, we, we then had a whole series of visionaries who, who contributed to Dub George and Dublin. There was a sense of pride from a unified grouping, and very similar, as I said, to the European politicians. Um, I believe our politicians are capable of, of that unity of purpose as well. Going on beyond that, the, the White Streets commissioners continued that on to the middle of the 19th century. And as I say, uh, in the 20th century, the Dublin Docklands Development Authority made big changes So, uh, to our city. I suppose what I'm basically saying is our planning system should be one that puts forward the vision, debates alternative visions. And that was where I was talking about the debate, but the debate is based on physical evidence, pictures, models, not on colored maps and text, which quite frankly, I speak for every architect and person and planner, probably. No one reads the development plan except lawyers afterwards. I might read specific pages that I need to know about an application, but I don't look to it for, for how I feel that the future of my city is going to be. It's ironic I can go online and look at Copenhagen or Berlin or Hamburg or Stockholm or Helsinki or Oslo or, or, or any of these cities today and see a short but clear vision of what's planned in the next five to 10 years. 
Um, That's I, I, the future I, I'd like to see for our cities. Do you know, the process you're describing there is one that I feel in the last decade has been the approach of um, area master plan. So mm -hmm. it certainly seems to be the approach uh, that is recognised as what works. But in terms of the development plan, where are we falling down and, and seeing where we are today? What's the what's the jumping off point? How do we start well, the, to make the change? The, the immediate practical way to deal with the, the current problem, and you, you've correctly identified local area plans uh, and sort uh, are often whole development plans exist with named uh, um, local area plans that we don't that never get done, or they get done a year or two before the end of the development plan, so they're out of date. We need to change our legislation. One, I believe that the local area plan should be done concurrently with the development plan. Given that we've just passed the whole of the development plans, up, my suggestion would be that in within one year the government should legislate that the local area plans for all of the areas nominated should be should be prepared. And if the planners require assistance, they should hire external help. My real aim, though, long term, is it would be better that this was done in-house by the planners. But as I said, if we, if we reallocate people to planning and spend less, the planning application process should become simpler as it is in Europe. Like essentially, it doesn't preclude someone doing something special that doesn't follow the plan, but the majority of applications would be a tick box. They show they comply. Our Australian and New Zealander uh, um, colleagues uh, brought in a rule about seven years ago uh, aimed at densifying their suburbs and they they brought in an incredibly simple rule and they said that you two houses are more together on a site and they they're with they're more than four feet off the boundary in other words they don't touch the boundary mm -hmm. they could automatically write their own permission to say uh, to reach the new, excuse me, to to reach the new de density standards. Uh, um, so a, a site with two houses might be replaced replaced by ten houses. That permission issues in forty four days okay. because it's simple. Because the the uh, uh, um, an administrator can deal with it because it's it's either true or it's not true. You're e you either comply or you don't, and you. The application consists of showing you comply. Our problem is there is no vision. There is no aspiration as to where we're heading with most of our development plans. Therefore, um, it becomes a complex process. Tony, how, how do we go about setting that right? Because, you know, I, I, I very recently um, carried out an interview with Mitchell McDermott's uh, Paul Mitchell. And, yes. you know, it's interesting in a completely different context um, he actually put forward that really we should be declaring a state of emergency in terms of our housing for the next two years. And that means emergency style measures. But one of the emergency style measures he called for was um, a large number of planners, possibly currently in the private sector, to be seconded um, in for state planning. So it's interesting that, you know, it, it, and it's not just a resource issue. Um, we need to be bringing the vision as well. So a lot of a lot of the chokeholds in our in our delivery is coming back to planning. And I, I suppose one of the questions I have is 
even if we were to get those people uh, and so we had the resources and we scaled up capacity how would we get to the unified or agreed vision because to my mind you know we're so far away from that at the moment and we see that through the 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 battles that are happening at a community level how do we how do we move towards achieving a vision that is unified or agreed well i i think paul from what you've described and i know paul well i i think he was describing a, a way of dealing with the current backlog Oh, no, and that's absolutely it. But it occurs to me that it could actually feed into what you're calling for now. Yeah, well, let me put it this way. I think the backlog has to be dealt with, but it exists in the old form. What I'm suggesting for immediately is we bring in external help to work with the planning, planning departments to begin to do those local area plans in three dimensions with CGIs and models. And that be, is made mandatory it's it's no longer to be done in the old form and because a lot of LAPs are still done by map and, and description. And that's simply not good enough. In fact, one of the concerns I would have is the planning profession as it has developed in Britain and Ireland. In my opinion, many planners do not plan at all. They process information. And I'm arguing for planners planning. And having a vision and um, creating the framework in which society can buy into and, uh, 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 and agree with that vision and that hearts and minds are one. You're not going to win hearts and minds with the sort of development plan that we're churning out at present in our local authorities. Tony, do you believe, based on where we are now, do you believe that there's an appetite for change? I have to say I do. I mean, I, I, this idea, and when, um, before I wrote the article for the Business Post, um, I, I spoke to a number of uh, colleagues and people I know from across the spectrum. And the one thing I was pleased at was, naturally, a lot of developers were happy to simply have certainty, because the uncertainty is causing great angst from, I think I said in my article, and certainly thought it, from London to New York to Frankfurt, the word is spreading that the Irish planning system is a basket case and it's not a place where they want to invest. That has serious implications for our country. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the, 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 the other area that, that, that the people who are concerned about development were interested in the idea because they got certainty from this process. And I think I think when I, one of the things I did in that article was I showed photographs, which I'd taken myself, of uh, various models, city models, and they're in the background were CGIs. And people instantly got it. In fact, the photographs I, I showed were of Gothenburg. I also had Stockholm, but Gothenburg was the one that struck the chord. It's about the same size as Cork. But they have a whole huge suite, city suite, that a visitor or a, a citizen can go to, you can have a coffee, you can look at the model of the city, you can look at CGIs, you can look at the area of the city you're interested in and see the vision for that part of the city. That's the way, that's positive uh, planning process. And that's, the, that's what I would like for our country. Okay, knowing, I suppose, looking at what we can control and what's outside of our control, you know, you're working on um, some really landmark, uh, your your company, your team, they're working on some really landmark projects. So 
how to what extent can the private sector maybe take a lead in this you know even down to simple things like you're talking about communications being the key like one of the things we've been proposing and really trying to promote over the last number of years is the use of immersive technologies um and obviously it would be better if planners would accept those as as part of the planning um application as well you know obviously there's a whole movement that needs to happen towards digital digital planning and we know that that's underway um and 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 you know it is in process but where do you think can the private sector maybe show some leadership in this well i think a lot of more progressive developers are doing that the quality of the the, the documentation they're producing is much better but i think the problem both for the developers and for society is that it's too late in the process that I, I, I think that the debate about the future of our cities needs to be as the development plan is being produced and at the beginning. And the appeal system should be at the beginning of the system. So, so in other words, it might be that the local authority's vision, if someone wants to appeal, if somebody believes we should have a car-based society, for example, and they truly believe that, let that be debated through the appeals process. But once it's over, one and that was the way it was in Gotland. Once that's been passed, it's almost treated like an outline permission that if you comply with the height, the mass, the density, all of the other technical requirements, that there's an automatic permission. The debate about the future is at the beginning with the council. And, and as I say, what that leads to in most European countries is an amazing uh, cross-party uh, acceptance that that's the vision of their city. I, I mean, I'm, I'm quite amazed that the number of countries have gone to to see that happening, ha having fought tooth and nail with each other to arrive at it. But they arrive at it through looking at models, through looking at images produced by professional planners. And the term is often used architect, urban designers or urbanists. We don't have those here in, in significant numbers. In fact, minuscule numbers we only have them most of our planners simply tick boxes they um, don't... <laughs> tony in reality how much how much or to what extent is this impacting ireland's reputation abroad oh it, it's it well firstly i think the more important thing is i think it's hugely causing a generational uh, uh, uh division i know in my own family i have uh, three daughters and one son and we have this regular debate about the generation before and, and the, the the society that we've left to the present day and they're right it, it is not a functioning society the the failure on how to deal with housing prices is a serious problem but in terms of international reputation um it, it's much more serious i mean the the engine for the change in our society which probably about 10 years after us joining the eu ireland began to benefit from uh, from uh, being in the EU, uh, and we gradually took off. Uh, that 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 investment in the country has been very important to achieving that independence, uh, and it has allowed our population to grow and for young people to be employed here. Uh, so it has hugely affected our in international reputation, and I it is something has to be dealt with as a matter of priority. Very um, 
Tony, in recent weeks, over the, the Christmas break, I came across an old video from 1965 around foreign direct investment on the west coast of Ireland from an uh, energy plant in, in Cove right up to the fisheries um, in Donegal and and all the counties in between, you know, um, Clare, Limerick, Mayo. And and people were interviewed at the time. There was it's very interesting sense. seeing it, by the way. Oh, it's great. Do you know, I did share it, but I'll send it on to you after the interview. But it's it's really interesting. And there was such a sense of enthusiasm. There was such a welcome for foreign, divest, foreign direct investment into Ireland. And particularly around the Shannon region, it was um, because it, I, I suppose it's an area where they could really see what the benefits could be and and I think that conversation has somehow changed shifted in the last five six seven years that foreign direct investment is somehow insidious um really there seems to be a lack of joined up thinking about how uh real estate development is financed you know so we're talking about uh, a, a rental crisis and at the, the same people who are complaining about the rental crisis are not welcoming of foreign investment coming into Ireland so like how do we how do we reconcile that well I, I think the answer I would give to that is that I think any of us who are involved in, in the industry or, or, or whether they're architects or planners or or, or builders or developers or, or those involved in the provision of housing we all recognize it isn't it isn't um, build to rent versus build to sell it isn't social housing or affordable housing versus we actually need all types of housing. And our problem, our problem has been over the last 10 years or more, well, after the crash, we had nothing for four or five years. Other than foreign direct investment, we, we do not have the pillar banks investing at all uh, in, in development. So that has dried up the source of funding in the private sector. So the only source of private funding is international investment. On the other side of the coin, the state has been very slow to get its act together and to build in the way it has a history of achieving it from the 20s and 30s onwards and the 50s, when we had very little um, in terms of um, financial availability, we managed to do it. There are some serious uh, um, institutional and operational problems here. But, but my answer is simply, we need to we need to persuade people we need all these things. Uh, foreign investment is just one of many things we need. We need our pillar banks to actually pony up and do something. We probably need a state bank uh, to, to help with it. And we need the state and local authorities and the LDA all to be providing uh, housing. Because the other side of this coin, and it's probably a subject for another discussion, that I'm involved also in property industry Ireland and uh, our economists make it very clear that the, we've been making it clear that the projections on the population were wrong. Our projections were within 10,000 uh, of the ultimate outcome of the census. The, the uh, Department of Housing and the planning authorities were insisting their figures, their figures were out by 360,000. But they wouldn't listen to advice. And um, now I know in recent months, I think uh, Property Industry Ireland has done a, a great job in putting that forward. And I know that the Minister for Housing has, in the last uh, month or six weeks, agreed to review. Now and that's welcome. But but it, it, it's it's go, it's 
it's like we know the answers it's taking too long that response time should be much more immediate and um, Tony notwithstanding what you've said about the need for a vision you know I well I suppose first of all let, let's ask you as an urbanist you know where should Dublin be where should Dublin be aiming towards what should Dublin look like in the next 50 years I would say in the next 25 years on to 50 years we should be looking at a more sustainable city that has a much higher proportion of public transport it should be a greener city it should be a green blue city in other words it should link to its green ecology but also to its water uh, river ecology and sea um, I, I think it should be a, a city where housing is available as it is in, your, in somewhere like Helsinki they've solved the housing crisis so we, I would like to think within 10 years we've solved our housing crisis that there are no homeless that that housing is affordable and that we are a, a beacon to the rest of the world as to how a modern European uh, civilized um equitable society would function um look that sounds like a clear and compelling vision one that I, I think the majority of people would be able to get behind uh certainly kind of in headline in headline terms um but I suppose before we wrap up today and I'm conscious of your time and I genuinely appreciate you being so generous with your time but um I suppose action plans you know where can we where can we start now so the state being where it is our planning system being where it is, um, the, our developers and the development community being where they are now and the challenges that they have in 2023, what reasonably would be some action steps to move us in the right direction? Okay, uh, on the planning front, I'd say two things. One, uh, as my colleague uh, Paul Mitchell had suggested, I think we need to get some outsiders in to quickly process the backlog. But more importantly, I think, I think the minister needs to direct planning authorities to start producing local area plans in three dimensions uh, uh, in models and CGIs in all of the areas of the cities and towns that are involved. Uh, in terms of the housing crisis, I could go on at length because that I've written quite a lot about that. But I see, think some of the key ones are I, I would remove VAT and levies uh, from housing, certainly for uh, first-time buyers, if not for more. I mean, uh, uniquely in Europe, we, we have uh, those things are usually spread across the entire community. I think most adults, when they realize that the effect on their children is it's adding roughly 17.5% to the cost of a home, uh, that's simply a, a, a tax uh, on something they have to take a mortgage out for 30 years is simply inequitable. Um, I've written about medium density housing, which exists everywhere in the uh, in, in in Europe, South America, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, it's densities of thirty five to about eighty to one hundred per hectare, which is a very good density. That that's done with housing. We've we're obsessed with rules which, um, based on on rules written in nineteen eighteen, Lloyd George introduced them in 1990 in Homes for Heroes. Uh, very appropriate for their day, completely inappropriate for Ireland or Britain indeed in the 21st century. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the system who are wedded uh, to those restrictive re regulations. I think those 
those changes would make a big difference to the provision of housing uh, Tony, in the relatively uh, immediate future. Very good. And before we finish up, how how optimistic are you that the government, the, the party of the day or the parties of the day will be able to start to tackle this in the next 12 months? Well, I'd actually say that this, and again, I spoke about the European example. I actually think that this trend, almost all of the parties in the Dáil, except Sinn Féin, have been in government over the last, ten, in, in the housing department. I, I think Sinn Féin will have the same problems uh, as the existing parties. While it may try to do things better in certain areas, the reality is that there is a, there, there is a bureaucracy uh, 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 within our uh, Department of Housing. Uh, that uh, is is part of the problem. In fact, there's there's a double problem: the silo effect of between various government departments. I mean, Department of Finance deals with some of the issues I spoke about, VAT and levies. <laughs> the Department of Housing is not allowed to deal with those issues, other than implementing them. Um, uh, the the, the the actual ministers and their departments need to work more closely to <laughs> remove the impediments that exist, which are leading and, and, um, and exacerbating the housing crisis. Um, and finally, this is something that I ask, you know, everybody who has been in the industry for a long time, um, you know, is this an industry that you would encourage the next generation into? Do you feel, do you feel that there is, you know, some of the problems feel so entrenched now, it feels that maybe a new wave of thinking might be necessary. Are we attracting the right people into the industry? Um, and, and is it something that you'd recommend? Well, I, I, Fortunate that I've worked outside of Ireland and uh, as well as in Ireland, I've seen many recessions and ups and downs. I think one of one of the joys of being an architect and, and an urban designer is that you do go through those troughs, but you know when it comes up the other side and you begin to overcome problems, there is a great feeling of success. And I'm again looking at, it's a very appropriate image you have behind it, Carl, because um, I, I can remember uh, in the mid 80s only uh, learned uh, papers being written about how difficult it would ever be to get any development uh, to occur in this forbidding uh, 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 landscape and how wrong they were so I, I, I am I'm, my, my colleagues call me the ultimate optimist so yes I would encourage my, my children or grandchildren to go into the industry very good. Tony, you know, um, I, I think it's good to finish on a bit of optimism um, to start the year because the problems, like I said, some of them feel quite entrenched. So a, a bit of optimism is what we need. But look, I would absolutely echo your call for vision um, in, in placemaking because it's what we know now. It's what we know our communities are demanding. It's not just what they want. It's what they're demanding. Um, right. You know, so it, it's a great one. Thank you so much um, for being so generous with your time. I genuinely appreciate it. Um, that was Tony Reddy, Chairman of Reddy Architecture and Urbanism. And that's it from us this week. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to the Hear Me Roar production team and to Luke Delaney on Sound for Dublin South FM. Until next time, thank you for listening.